0: Podcast, the only book club podcast that endorses neither really the flavor nor the nutritional benefits, nor I'll throw in the texture of Nutrigrain bars. They'll help you out mm. in a pinch, Amanda, but uh, it, would you call it a meal replacement? I mean, come on, it's barely a snack. It's kind of pathetic. They're sad looking, they're sad-looking. Definitely they're not a meal. Yeah, definitely not a meal. Like they're,
1: I mean, they can be tasty for like, I would say it's almost like a a post-dinner snack. While you're watching mm-hmm. a movie and you don't want popcorn.
0: If you were in a certain diet stage of your life or monitoring caloric intake or something, I could see you talking yourself, not, I mean, the hypothetical you, not you, Amanda. I could see a person talking themselves into thinking it's dessert. I, I get that. Yeah. Cause they're sweet enough, they're kind of soft maybe you throw it on top of some ice cream or something, I don't know. You could you could talk yourself into it, but I just having that be your go-to, I'm going to rifle this quick through my body just to get some calories. I don't know. It's just for some reason it reminds me of, you know, sad post-games youth sports that kind of a thing. Oh yeah. It's a half-hearted snack, you know. I won't hate on it. It has a place, but I certainly don't think it should be the cornerstone of a diet. <laughs> it makes me sad. Mm-hmm. No, especially for somebody who's livelihood
1: is to be like active and <laughs> yeah yeah to be actively
0: pursuing people perhaps if you yeah. have no idea why we're talking about the mediocrity of Nutri-Grain bars that is because we are here today to discuss Ghetto Side by Jill Leovy. it's our current book club study you have found the Lightly Literary Podcast in a book club episode which is an analytical deep dive episode if you're new to the show perhaps go back and look in the feed for the book review or the book club part one for this book but if you're new to the show welcome. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We have Facebook and Instagram accounts up, so we ask that you follow those. They are both at the Lightly Literary Podcast, which is all one word. Also, if you found us on a social media platform or a podcast platform, give us a rating, a like, review. That stuff helps a ton. So Spotify or iTunes or any of the other big ones, we do appreciate it. Again, it's book club part two for Genocide. We will be discussing the second half of this nonfiction crime study. Would study be that? How you'd phrase it? Crime study. I guess so. Yeah,
1: Because yeah, I mean, it's got some philosophy. It's got some some everything in there. So yeah, and it, it's mm-hmm, a, it's mm-hmm. a case study, I guess, because it follows yeah. one particular case. Kind (laughs) of. We'll talk about that
0: in the back half. (laughs) Kind of does. No, it it definitely focuses on a case, that's for sure. So in part one, we covered chapters one through 14, I believe, or one through 15, thereabouts. Today, the whole book is fair game, so if you've never done a part two book club with us, we'll be discussing the entire work at this point in analytical detail, not holding anything back. We're going to dive right into the conversation and talk through the back half of this book. Amanda, anything before we start to Ghetto Side by Jill Leovy, part two? I don't think so. I think I'm ready. All right. So let's dive back into this. Let's talk about the first part of the second half. We chunk these up into chapters. So 15 and 16. This is when the case starts to really get worked. Uh, for those who don't remember, there's a murder case. The T- Tinelli is the last name, is it? Is it Tanell or Tinelli? That's
1: how I've been pronouncing it. Got it.
0: Be- because
1: of a thing that i read in here but i could
0: be totally yeah. wrong <laughs> well we're going with tinelli for now but the young man was murdered and so skaggs the lead detective finally gets to put his relentless you know twist on things and starts tracking and following witnesses and everything eventually he gets tips about a 16 year old named baby man whose name is Devin davis and then no brains another gangster on the south side uh, whose name is Derek starks who's older right Tw- in his 20s maybe
1: Yeah, yes, I think in his 20s. Yeah, he's definitely... The older one
0: yeah. So not a teenager for sure (laughs) Yeah it becomes important that baby man Devin Davis Is more childlike Um, but they're already In the penal system for other crimes things like Attempted burglary and robberies especially Starks So they're kind of easy to find and they're also Conveniently being held already which is A strange coincidence but they're already in For other things Um, Skaggs In this section also meets an essential witness The getaway driver supposedly Or allegedly to the crime whose name is Jessica Midkiff she Is plagued and traumatized by a of abuse, physical, emotional, all kinds of things. She lived her life as a prostitute and a stripper, and with that came, you know, certain life on the street horrors and things. And so she she cooperates with Skaggs and really has essential information about what happened. But also he has a hard time, kind of, I don't know, managing her, which feels odd to say, given again she was literally um, kind of pimped out and was a. Um, Is prostitution, I guess, the term? Anyway, so she she comes with some emotional issues that he tries to deal with as well. In this section, Amanda, anything jump out? Because to me, it's all about Jessica. When she enters this, I guess we'd call it a story or narrative, I just found her so compelling and enticing. She's a fascinating case of a person who is trying to do better and just seemingly can't get out of the vortex of the lifestyle that the South side has kind of imposed upon her. Did she strike you as well when she entered the story?
1: Definitely. And, and it's something that I think, uh, Leovi did a really good job with in, um, in showing how the, the kind of lifestyle that she's been pulled into that she's been like, really forced into in a lot of ways because she the very first instance of abuse that she had was like as a child less than 11 years old i think she said right um yeah yeah by her stepfather and and then like the downward cycle there and and not receiving help she's never received really any help um and that's the kind of mentality that you know you have um in I think a lot of these people, um, even even the people who are committing the crimes, because they keep saying, "I want to get out of this life, but I can't." And yeah. her case really showcases like how how defining it is for them as as in their psyche and everything that they just can't escape that lifestyle, and it's like kind of forced onto them.
0: Yeah, it's really quite brutal, and the author is pretty delicate when describing these things. I guess I'll do the uncouth content warning for this episode now we're going to be discussing a lot of things about violent crime obviously gang crime gun crime street crime but with Jessica there's going to be things um going to quote just now, or coming up, yeah, details, intense descriptions, and very specific things about forms of abuse, physical, emotional, and related to all of the lifestyle things I just mentioned, so we'll put we'll put the content warning there, I totally forgot to do it at the beginning, but I think we hadn't gotten into anything too intense, so I feel like that's a fair enough warning, so if you want to avoid those things, um, feel free to skip, or just maybe, I don't know, skip this episode, honestly, because she'll be coming up a lot, to be honest, this is the part where I have to be the most intense or specific, though, So here's just some examples from 182, and this comes back a lot in the story. It says, But men always found Midkiff, no matter where she tried to go. There had been so many boyfriends that turned into pimps, so many beatings, girl fights, and rapes at gunpoint, so many misdemeanor arrests that her prostitution years had kept a kaleidoscopic quality. Only she could keep it straight. She slept all day and was up all night for years. Her life a blur of shared motel rooms and fleeting, intense friendships that often ended in rancor. By the time she was 21, she had never held a job, could not or so could barely read and had no ability to control or conduct relationships with any maturity or control she was brittle and constantly flew to rages she had frequent fights with other women and then she suffered from severe post-traumatic stress disorder and prompted um, that prompted rather anxiety attacks and so it's really just horrific and of course There's the human side of it, which I think she's nice enough and delicate enough, the author, without giving the story over to her. It's clearly still Skaggs' story. I think this is Skaggs' book, to put it simply. But I just think Jessica, it was such a condensed, intense really just depressing example of how you can be again sucked into a neighborhood, a life, a a culture so to speak and yeah I just I felt for her horribly and then of course she becomes like an essential person throughout the case and really has some key testimony to give and tries to get out and yeah her introduction was I don't know really brutal it's it's odd that in this section I'd rather highlight her for example than the other the two young men accused of the crime but I just think that her whole backstory was such a whirlwind and a really yeah intense case study.
1: And and Skaggs's relationship with her where he's almost like mm-hmm. a father figure to her in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. he the the amount of because she comes forward as a witness, she agrees to to testify and everything. But uh, one of the things that Leo V had pointed out earlier in the book too is that just because a witness comes forward doesn't mean that they're guaranteed some of the w- witness protection um, programs and, and stuff that are afforded to them because they have not yet testified in the court. So, like they their lives are threatened, uh, but they can't always you know they yeah. they're being forced to come forward and and be you know what they call snitches but they're not being protected for it and so skaggs really goes out of his way to protect her in a lot of ways like he he, she's got Mm -hmm. his personal phone number and he checks up on her like at least weekly he moves her around from Mm -hmm. motel to motel um he's there when her boyfriend's because she continues to see uh, some of the, the less savory folks, um, I suppose. Yeah, the
0: men detail in there is essential. It it never stops yeah. coming up, frankly, even to the end when she gets kind of a happily ever after, so, so to speak, right. I suppose. Even then, it's, it's very important that she... Is in a relationship with uh, in that point, a, a rather stable man, hopefully a trustworthy and kind right. and non abusive one. So, right, but yeah, it's, it's something that consistently throws her off and drives Skaggs crazy because he's you know, she doesn't know where she lives, she has issues sometimes and isn't available to you know, help run the case or do interviews or something. So,
1: yeah, and he even refers to her, I think, as like his other child, right? Because he's raising. Yeah. a couple of kids of his own and then he's like he he talks about her as though that that were his other child that he kind of adopted in some ways but mm-hmm. um but yeah I thought that was that particular detail of, of skagg's having to spend a lot of his free time with her and um even some of his own personal resources on her that mm-hmm. I think was yeah. pretty um an in- an interesting detail that kind of highlights Another failing of the the police department's um, policies towards witnesses in these neighborhoods. Definitely,
0: yeah. Would you pull from this section?
1: Um, I looked at and I th- I found it interesting on pages uh, 178 and 179, where Leo V kind of talks more about the justice system in general and like the purpose of the justice system, um, n- because th- this in particular. Pertains to her argument that we need to um, increase resources and increase presence, not but change the way that they are presented in a way. Um, yeah. So it okay. says. This was exactly the point getting rid of people. Seldom was it put this way, but one of the primary reasons to have a legal system is to take certain people out of the picture. It is what justifies the immense power the police hold. If you don't incapacitate violent actors, they keep pushing people around until someone makes them stop. When violent people are permitted to operate with impunity, they get their way. Advantage tilts to them. Others are forced to do their bidding. Uh, no mm-hmm. amount of community feeling or activism can eclipse this dynamic, so here again is um her argument that you know we need um a jail we need to be uh we need to hold violent offenders accountable and not just let them get away with it because of their quote gang ties or whatever yeah. I don't even remember yeah. the the terminology she uses where it's like. One for one or whatever when it's the gang wars and stuff like that when they were talking about that and right. they're fairly dismissive of it because they they're thinking is that the victims are not innocent victims <laughs> um, right
0: right
1: so, another one um, down
0: there was some really yeah and we covered yeah, that in part yeah. one but yeah some very crass or we get two for one I think sometimes was how it was phrased
1: yeah which um, I know that that is also a part of like a coping mechanism for some people but you'll see some of that um, in like mm-hmm. the military and stuff as well it's a way yeah. to kind of buffer yourself and, and give you some space from the atrocities that you witness on a day to day basis um, mm-hmm. but like the so that is interesting that she's arguing yes that we, we need um, we need the justice system in order to um, get rid of violence in in our communities, right? Because it, it, she's saying the next line is that no amount of community feeling can get rid of that violence, right? Yeah, especially the power that comes from. And let's face it; I mean, people, I mean, that's why there are rapists. That's why there are, are, are people serial killers and stuff like that. It's the it's the violence that gets them off, right? It's the it's the power that they feel from that, and it's. Um, and it is a struggle for power a lot of the time, but um, her acknowledgement of the need for a justice system that actually, like you know, throws people in jail and actually punishes people instead of just letting them get away with it. Um, it's interesting too when she later discusses the incompetence of of the judicial system in that one specific thing is when they get. Starks' name, or not Starks, one of the other guys' names, um, wrong in the system. Mm-hmm. Um, they Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, completely wrong. First, they, like, put his last name as his first name, and then it wasn't even his real name anyway, <laughs> and... Yeah. So then Skaggs calls him up and is like, hey, or is it Corey? Corey calls him up and he's like, hey, you need to change the name and calls them again and a week later and they still hadn't updated the system to reflect who that person really is. Just is yeah. mind blowing to me. <laughs> like, yeah, it was a you, difficult you're supposed section. supposed to have all this. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Oh, it, no, it was just a it's you see the bureaucratic kind of systems and then you mm-hmm. just see the small ways they can get subverted and you just wonder <laughs> is is it just... Do we need a more th- thorough, you know, bureaucratic system to solve that system mistake, or is it just general apathy? Is it just on-the-job performance issues? I mean, she even is kind enough, the author, to give a couple of explanations that people one don't want to go by their names, or two don't have legal documentation to prove it anyway. People might not right. even have driver's licenses or any paperwork trail on the on their person, and then also the spelling issue, a pretty basic but common one, which is just that if you have people people doing intake of inmates or something and they have names they've never heard before the spelling might just go awry by like a letter or two and so i don't know yeah she she lists off those things pretty pretty well
1: yeah and and having even finding um jessica midkiff was for skaggs kind of like a hard thing to do. He had to dig really hard to find her actual Mm -hmm. name because she gave a variation of her aunt's name. And then he had like, because I guess I didn't actually check her ID, (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. which I assume she has one because she drives right or not. I don't, maybe she doesn't. I don't know. Um, But they, they certainly didn't get an ID and, and didn't write down her ID information and stuff. So that, that misinformation and the the way that they can kind of like fall through the cracks in that way too, I think is is really interesting. Considering how much power the police already have, and what um, Leovi is arguing that they should they should have, but then these yeah. little things that are just not adding up for them.
0: Yeah, she catalogs those well.
1: Yeah. Um. So yeah, uh, the next couple of chapters, chapter 17 and 18, um, we get an in-depth description of Skaggs's interview with Devin Davis, who is the murderer of Bryant Um, and it's full of dialogue and Leovi's analysis, and then it's followed by Skaggs' interview with Derek Starks, which is way less detailed uh (laughs) she dedicates several pages to um davis and then i want to say like two or three pages maybe to starks it was just a completely different type of interviews it was was interesting and then fast forward um in the next chapter a few months and leo v dives into budget cuts struggling morale and giant caseloads again just looking at um kind of like the 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 non-media-facing side of uh, police work there.
0: Yeah, a, a thing she'll return to several times, actually, kind of in the back half. She does follow Corey, Detective Corey, if that's how I was pronouncing it, as he kind of yeah. veers off and becomes the true Little Skaggs, or Little Skaggs, as they call him.
1: Yeah. And, yeah, she,
0: she does do some... <laughs> Institutional investigation Beyond the case It's not the dominant Focus of the book At any point But yeah It starts to widen A little bit too I felt like In the back half
1: Yeah it does And I was Wondering uh, When we were reading Actually the first half And and it mentioned Corey And Morello I think was his name Mm -hmm. And um, Morello was like Partnered up with Skaggs And Skaggs Like had a lot of faith In him as, as an officer And then and then Corey's just kind of like chilling there. And I was like, why is he even mentioned here?
0: <laughs> so I yeah. guess we find out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he becomes more prominent in the second half and kind of earns it, you know, becomes a different form of a similar effective person by the end. But right. Yeah, I'll give a brief shout out in this section to the Compton. It was at the courthouse or something, which is apparently yeah. like a a monstrous Castle looming kind of architectural nightmare. Those are nice. And I didn't want to pull the quote for it because I just wanted to give it a quick shout out. But those are kinds of the small observational, a lot of setting work she does. And she's good with time of day. She's good with just sort of putting a scene together and constructing an atmosphere. So I enjoyed that, you know, what, page long detour about how it's kind of a hideous building and it really does not fit the tone of the neighborhood. And it's kind of like this awkward, imposing you know clearly not meant to be their unnatural force which given the culture and how justice is dealt there and everything else it yeah it is a nice little detour she's good with those moments too she,
1: yeah she is and, and i liked the details about some of the like peeling paint and stuff like that just to show the the neglect in in some ways too so i thought that was really well done as well
0: How did you find the interrogation with Skaggs here, which she clearly got access to the tape on? (laughs) I mean, if she does not have access to this interview... Or (laughs) she was there. Yeah. One of those two things must be true, because if that's not true, then this is a total fabrication and a sham. But no, I'm assuming... I didn't check her footnotes in the back, but I'm assuming she either saw the tape, which they show in court, so it it exists and everything. They can put that back or run that back. And so anyway, what did you find... um, it's funny He Skaggs isn't framed totally as a mythic figure He's obviously pretty grounded by her But had you ever seen We'd never seen him work so much explicitly It was a lot of summaries of his approach And this is such an Intimate reveal of his vocal ticks, his attitude his like his tone and so i don't know i found it to be a really significant moment for the book because it was like oh you really do get to spend you know 40 minutes in a in not a cell but in an interrogation room with this man
1: yeah it was i i found it really interesting and and i think i learned a lot more about skaggs um and I was, I was actually very surprised. I remember when he was interviewing Starks and how he was just kind of like, meh, I don't really need your confession, so it's whatever. <laughs> like, and he just kind of treats it that way. Um, mm-hmm. But I I remember reading in the first half that she was, um, that Leo V pointed out that he has, um, like, surfer talk sometimes, right? Um, so... I was expecting, I suppose, more of that when he was speaking with um, Davis, but he actually didn't. It was, it was just mm-hmm. like a, a lot of roundabout conversation about absolutely nothing, which I, I was like, that would drive me
0: crazy too. <laughs> like, yeah, my god, yeah, <laughs> it's telling from all the media I've consumed that as I'm seeing. Reading this interview and listening, not listening, it felt very vocal because of the dialogue of it all. Right. But hearing Skaggs and seeing his techniques, that the you don't have to say anything. My whole the whole time I'm thinking, one, these two people seem guilty. The evidence is incredible against them. The case is like really stacking up against them. So it's not like I want a murderer to go free, but at the same time, I'm like, just you don't you can just sit there in total silence. I mean, there's no. Yeah. It's amazing to me that given how. Much some of the people who live on the ghetto side, as they call it, are kind of brought up to adhere to certain codes and street rules and cultural things. And they they have this whole way of being that's unique that the book shows, you know, pretty intensely that this isn't like uh, rule 101 of gang life is like just right. sit in total... I mean, I suppose it's the fear that creeps in, it's the nervousness. We can, of course, say things like, "That's." I would just sit there, but, you know, people get nervous, they, they don't want to admit guilt, they, you know, it's a tense situation, he's heckling, and at, at some point, he just lies to him as well, to try and draw him out, so, yeah. But it, also, you're sitting there, just thinking, like, oh my gosh, this kid, as soon as he starts talking, Skaggs is kind of working him back and forth, and yeah, it's a really intense scene. It's, I think she... It's weird. Did you find that she's generous in describing his style or is she critical? Because there's times when she says things like, I wish I pulled the quote for this, I didn't, but she comments on his his vocal tics, Skaggs's, and says things like he doesn't swear, but then a paragraph later he swears. And so there were times when I found yeah. her descriptions maybe, not off, but a little too flattering or something and I, and she treats everything like it's a stroke of genius by him sometimes it just seems like he's frustrated i did like it the climactic moment of him trying to interrogate not starks but the but davis that he did something, his clapping, and she just says, like, he it's random, like, he just started spasmatically, or sp- is it spasmatically? Yeah, he Spasm- did, like, three he different just, claps. Yeah, he just starts clapping. I, di- I did enjoy, finally, that she's like, yeah, that's not some genius brain moment of insight. He just, like, <laughs> did it. <laughs> it yeah. apparently shocked him. Um, did you find she narrated <laughs> him favorably or something?
1: I think so. I think, um, yeah. I think generally speaking, Except for like the very beginning, the very first line of Skaggs in the in the book, otherwise it's been very complimentary toward him. Yeah, for for sure. sure.
0: Yeah,
1: Yeah. and the 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 I thought it was a a good point for her to make. um, She was she did try to explain why these guys do talk to the officers. They're trying to uh, interrogate the officers. As well as mm-hmm. being while they're being interrogated, they're trying to find out how much information the police have. They're trying to find out um, whether, like, who is the snitch, whether there is a snitch, and stuff like that. So, so I get it, but uh, that that's a
0: little risky. <laughs> yeah, and it is just part so. of the kind of narrative task, I suppose. It it was an yeah. intense scene, though. It felt very film. Is it filmic to me, or sort of you know like TV or film like?
1: Yeah, definitely uh, uh, Law and Order-esque, I mm-hmm. guess. <laughs> Anything jump out to you? Yeah, um, so I had pointed out um, the use of the names um, in, in the previous episode. And here again, I noticed with the names that Liovi refers to Davis as Devin, using his first name. But then with Starks, she uses his last name. And she also, for Jessica Midkiff... She uses the last name Midkiff mostly until the very end when she starts calling her Jessica, in the in the the like second to last chapter or whatever. Bring forth um, your
0: theory. Bring forth the theorizing because this I didn't <laughs> pick up on this at all.
1: <laughs>
0: Bring forth the just, analysis.
1: It's it's just strange to me because um, with the I had pointed out in the previous episode that with the victims Bryant Tanelli and um, Devon Harris she she took pains to refer to them it, by their first names, which makes sense, right? That creates a feeling of, of an emotional bond. You feel closer to them versus referring to somebody as their last name. It's kind of like you're putting them... There's a bit of a distance there. So with mm-hmm. Skaggs, she... That's one of the reasons why I wasn't sure if she liked Skaggs too, right? Because she only refers to him as Skaggs. Um, and so here we have Devin who is by the end a convicted murderer and he's you know during his confession you know he's the one to pull the trigger and shoot and then but she's using his first name and is it because he's a juvenile is it because he's only what is he I can't remember is he 16 17 at the time he is
0: when it starts yes
1: yeah so he's fairly young um and then Starks, who's who's in his 20s um and who is way less willing to work with the police um and um is the kind of mastermind is what they they convicted of him of being essentially um behind the murder but the whole time she only refers to him as a starks rather than uh by his first name and I was like, okay, so she does, she's creating, so Devin does, cause he's young. Maybe it's because of his youth and because he's not the brightest crayon in the box that she's creating that sympathy line with him, mm-hmm. but not so with Starks because he's a grown man and he's, he's, um, manipulating those around him and mistreating those around him. So maybe that's why. But then when she was describing um, Jessica Midkiff, I was very surprised that she did not refer to her as Jessica to create again that emotional bond, especially after she went through the trouble of giving us her background and the, the horrible things that she went through in her life. So I'm not quite that. That's the part that I was kind of like, uh, OK, mm-hmm. um, that's weird because there's nobody else in the book named Jessica either. So there's no need to differentiate by the last name. So I just wasn't yeah, sure
0: but it definitely her last name definitely popped to me. But I guess I suppose that's just because it was used so often. Even seeing Jessica yeah. again, I had to do a double take to make sure that was her first name just because it becomes. Yeah. yeah, it's last names are distinctive in that way, I suppose. But you're right. There's no mm-hmm. like overlap to worry about
1: yeah so i I just was struck by that because she doesn't start referring to her as jessica until um she's on the witness stand
0: right right yeah some consistency would i don't know what it would do for it again this is not something i you've you've taken up the analytical mantle for this because it's not something i considered <laughs> but no yeah it's interesting any other thoughts on that any other naming conventions jump out i mean the detectives don't they always get last names? I like how I think I feel like with it was their boss named LaBarbera or La LaBarbara, La, La Barbara? yeah, La Barbara I, I feel think like, is how it was pronounced. I feel like he often gets his first name. But that's I'm totally off the cuff so I haven't pulled quotes for that.
1: Um I think I think for him it's mostly the last name. Gotcha. Um there was there was the guy who is one up above him as well, whose last name, I think, sounds like a first name. Gotcha. Uh, What was his... LaSalle or something like that? Okay,
0: yeah. I don't recall.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the names were... were It wouldn't have bothered me as much if I didn't also notice that, like, Jessica Midkiff, she only was pronouncing, she was just calling her Midkiff, and
0: I was like, but yeah. why? <laughs> but why? Totally. It's something that, it's like, a, once you itch it, you can't stop scratching or something, you know? Once you mm-hmm. notice it, it's, and the fact that I never did, it just, it didn't even, re- I just kept on cruising through, you know I don't do well with names anyway. <laughs> Next couple of chapters cover a few, few key things. Mostly chapters 19 and 20 details the trials and tribulations of trying to keep Jessica Midkiff, we'll say both names, a key witness, is satisfied and <laughs> safe. So this is another section that I think enticed me quite a bit. Just because uh, Skaggs rather struggles so much, he, like you noted earlier, becomes a kind of father figure, does basic things like feeds her, for example, and like takes her out to get meals, checks up on her work status, job status to see what's going on. They also struggle, they, the detectives, with their second key witness, um, because he Was it the wheelchair-bound man? I forget his name. Mm. Did they ever... They must have said his name because they have him testify, and they promised him he would never have to, but he did, and so they break promises for him, his identity is revealed, he, you know, obviously then begins to ignore them and doesn't want to cooperate anymore, so they're really struggling with both witnesses, really. The case drags on. Skaggs gets a new and notably, I would say, quieter job, while other detectives like Corey continue to struggle in the Southern Divisions, and so Skaggs is, he's not put off to the side in this narrative because we, we get information about his new job, how few homicides are there for example how he he shuffles things around but eventually runs out of tasks to do you know and yeah. so it, it kind of leaves him alone and then follows other cases on the south side it's as if the author didn't want us to forget the kind of daily struggle the culture of the happenings of the southern division when skaggs moves along so it's right you know and the case continues again there's some witness issues um what jumped out here for you
1: um, She, Liovi, very briefly kind of talks more like philosophy again in one of these chapters. Um, so from pages like 239 to 243, she talks a little bit about the difference between... Um, it, she says that in, in the being impoverished does not guarantee the same level of violence. It's actually like... Being poor is one aspect of it, but it's only because uh, poverty limits your mobility. So her argument is that mobility, the ability to leave the neighborhood behind, the the knowledge that you can go somewhere else, that's what um, yeah. prevents a higher violent crime rate, which I found really interesting because she talks very briefly about... Um, uh, the immigrant neighborhoods, um, and she focuses on she she makes the comment that like with the Asians, um, especially the um, uh, the the Korean immigrants that come over with money, um, they right. they don't have the same crime rates, um, which is a broad stroke, I would like to say uh, and point out. but um mm-hmm. also uh, she talks about with um the um, hispanic um immigrant communities because they were afforded more job opportunities than the black community she talked about like manufacturing jobs and factory jobs and stuff like that she she talked about historically how um actually hispanic labor was uh preferred over black labor there they're actually given more uh monetary opportunities which then allowed them to be more mobile and to have more opportunity to leave those neighborhoods um which is not to say that there's not also gangs and stuff going on there, right? Um because in the previous chapters she's she's mentioned that um you know, some of the other neighborhoods, not not that particular neighborhood, but in other neighborhoods there are um specifically immigrant um gang members as well and race-based uh gangs. So right. um I just thought that that was really interesting and and the idea that mobility is the key and they are also more likely to provide information to the police and to work with the police and to quote snitch for the police and and not fear uh, reprisal for that so I just thought That was yeah, a really interesting
0: theory It's it's a worth saying that every time You think Leovy's is going to make Well maybe not every time but a lot of the Times when you think she's going to make one kind of Generalized common conclusion She avoids simplification Or at least oversimplification This is a good example too because as much as mm-hmm. We can ascribe many many plagues Social plagues to poverty She does bring clarification She brings nuance she yeah goes Deeper and says why you can't just blanket summarize something like that or why it's not so simple so yeah i appreciate that point being brought up because it's yeah it's a good example that she's pretty thorough i think even within that still there are enough things to make me shrug or i certainly thought more than on more than one occasion like that doesn't have to be true or oh okay maybe you're just summarizing something too quickly but within the context Mm -hmm. of the book none of it feels unfair it's I don't know. There are certainly things she presents as, un you know, must be accepted fact, <laughs> kind of some of her assumptions she operates from. But on the whole, I think it, it does work pretty well. And again, a point like that just shows, yeah, she's she digs into some subtleties and stuff.
1: She does. And, and I appreciate that because it makes me as the reader kind of want to dig into my own research and,
0: and follow yeah. up on some of her ideas. For sure. For sure. I, again, am a sucker for this relationship in this story. I just pulled stuff from the Skaggs <laughs> Midkiff developments. Yeah. I don't think there's much new uh, ground for us to trot here because, as we well covered, it's, it's clearly a father-daughter relationship. I think the author is very sensitive to it and wants to portray it in a kind of fair but realistic manner. Here's something that did jump out, though, on 225. I thought this was pretty funny. I, funny in in a way I'll, I'll discuss. It says, so Skaggs monitor her carefully, checking up on her regularly and taking her to lunch when he could. True to his peculiar propriety, Skaggs always professed wonderment in Midkiff's dissolute ways. She went to bed at six in the morning and slept until the afternoon, then does nothing for fourteen hours, Skaggs marveled, as if he had not worked for years among people who pass their time in exactly the same manner. And he, you know, goes on to talk about her issues landing a job, or at least a consistent one, or finding one that pays better than stripping, which heads up, not many of them do. <laughs> It's just that that also, yeah. unfortunately, comes with a lot of other burdens and, and other issues that traumatize her. Anyway, it the moments like that, it's funny because on the one hand, again, look at how Skaggs is being narrated. Very kind of, just look at the vocab, like her dissolute ways. It's He gets this certain formality and respect from Leovi. Then again, Mm -hmm. he's conveying a point of view that she's thoroughly explained why that that point of view is – not that it's wrong, but that it's too simple. But she doesn't come at him about it. (laughs) She just kind of lets him be himself, I suppose. I, I, again, know at this point, having finished this, that it is Skaggs' book. She clearly dedicates it to him, though I don't know if she would frame it that way. I just think given how it's written that I would say that. Right. Yeah, it's, I, I don't know if it's a moment to critique him. I don't think it needs to be, but it, it was a telling moment because it's at one point you can kind of chuckle at him there and think like, oh man, you're, you know... You're really not getting this still, and that at the same time he gets it better than anyone. It's he's an odd, interesting study in that case too. He's he sticks to a couple of things. He's very morally clear at, at times, and then of course he's so enveloped in the world that you at times wonder like, can't you be more subtle about this, or how do you not? <laughs> You're you know better than anyone. I'm just you know who do I, what do I know? I'm just reading this book, uh, but he stays stubborn, and I don't know. I think she's I don't think she's delicate with him, but she does enough like that to i don't know keep him honest or something yeah i i wondered too if she was going to get a little more critical with him at times but no i think i think she respects him too much but a funny little moment
1: yeah i um i remember chuckling when she made the comment about he works with people who do the same thing it's just that you know they show up at work, but they're still doing nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, snaps, that was a good one <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah they, they just kind of you know passively pass through, and let the promotions right. come." definitely because
1: that's socially acceptable
0: yeah definitely definitely and it's and she knows the (laughs) anyway he knows better than anyone that the day-to-day grind of the southern neighborhoods how the culture works how jobs you know don't stick around or come and go he just it's like he sees the he has such a sensitive eye and ear to the daily life and yet has a i guess hard time he's close to the situation though like she's a almost a daughter for him so that's maybe understandable in that sense too yeah
1: yeah, maybe she frames it that way specifically because we don't see what his attitude is like towards, like, some of the other people that he's true. encountered and, yeah. and other witnesses. Yeah, so, it's true. So maybe that was very purposefully done there. In which case, good job. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the The next couple of chapters... Uh, Leovi details the frustrations of the homicide unit, especially with the limited resources and the disregard of the other units for both the department and the community it serves. There are several murders. There's a gang war that is spiraling and highlights how policing policies exacerbate rather than alleviate the community's fear of retaliation and distrust of the police force. Then we follow the first few days of Bryant Tonelli's murder trial, which is full of
0: description and very, very emotional. Yeah. Um here so f- here Amanda, I hate to interject, but we're about to do something devastating to the true crime crowd who has surely flocked to our podcast and our numbers are up <laughs> by thousands of percentage points. <laughs> <laughs> Why does the, she really breaks from the narrative here? She doesn't abandon the case, but there are long stretches in this in this section. And kind of there have been sprinkled throughout the back half where she does leave the the case behind and talks about the southern precinct and its general issues, restructuring bureaucratic problems, crime waves and inept responses. Like, how did you feel about this section? Because it's it is in. Intriguing. Uh, it's kind of a bold move once you have such an intense and invested narrative thread going to just leave it at times.
1: So I, I know in my mind, I'm like, OK, she's doing this because it helps bolster her main argument, which is that the police need actually more resources in order to police better, not less resources to police better. Right. Um, so I understand that. But from a, a literary perspective, when she breaks up the narrative like that, and she does so beautifully with the narrative, too, and she's, in some ways, she is able to interweave certain observations and philosophies very well um, in those narratives, but then, like, this the entire chapter that's, like, breaking away from the case, which is not the first time that she's done this. Right. It's, yeah, It, it my complaint in the first... Um, episode one of the complaints for me was that sometimes it felt a bit disjointed the way that she was writing because she's got these uh, this great narrative flow it's like reading a novel almost and then all of a sudden it's like there's a chapter that reads like a philosophy book or a history book or like a manual on like why bureaucracies suck like <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's so yeah so I I think that from from a from the perspective of her of her purpose these chapters are necessary they work for her thesis and in and, and stuff but then looking at it from a, a literary perspective it's just like oh my gosh can can you just like Interweave this a little bit better Definitely
0: and it, it does pay off in a couple of Touching and intense and even Illuminating moments too so I don't want to I'm not saying I disliked it because I'm Also I'm not part of the true crime I need The you know give me the clues give me the mystery Give me the case only that kind of a vibe mm-hmm. So I was okay with it but it it Did strike me as kind of a bold decision Because once the wheels get turning and Again I was intrigued by the Jessica Midkiff aspect of this the her Involvement yeah. and and you know she does A good job we haven't quoted much from it but just detailing the proceedings how the other two like you know the the i thought the interrogation scenes were pretty intense too and yeah just to leave those things be it also maybe reflects how the court case takes forever to get through the system so you do have to just wait yeah. for a year a lot of people end up in holding for probably longer than is right or just um in, in that sense too so that's a pretty crucial aspect of it as well but yeah bold I guess bold decision is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. I was intrigued by that choice so late in the book. It looks like we have a similar stopping note here. What are your thoughts on La Barbara or La? Ba- is it? How are you doing it? La Barbara or Barbara? You- I've been pronouncing it Barbara. <laughs> yeah. What are your thoughts on? Because because of so because of those structural choices, we get a lot more from Corey. We get a lot more from La Barbara
1: we do yeah and um and the things that we've learned about la Barbara before this chapter too is like he's kind of a quirky guy um he's the mm-hmm. one who who looks at policing as though it's a sales pitch rather than um uh, you know brute force where you have to like gain the trust of people you're selling your your skills and you're selling your trustworthiness to a community Um, which I found interesting. But yeah, I I found this interesting too. this, this particular chapter, because of the idea of there's this cop versus detective mentality. And it's and it goes both ways, right? Where uh, the homicide group, or at least their particular department, um, perhaps because it's the community they serve. um, But there was a lot of um, mistakes and, and disregard and lack of compassion from the uniformed officers from, from the cops as they um, as the detect- detectives were pointing out um, they failed to um, like get a witness's phone number and, and all this stuff and then, but also the detectives have such disdain in general for for the uniformed officers um and they also yeah. um the uniformed officers get more resources they get more overtime they get more of everything and the detectives don't so there's a little bit of jealousy there too i think and so this rivalry between these two groups which we also see actually have you ever seen the movie or not the movie the tv show brooklyn 99 oh yeah i finished it Oh, nice! Yeah, um, uh, yeah, we finished it a couple months ago, but um, uh, the the Brooklyn Nine Nine they hate the fire department, right? 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 Yeah. So even though their their end goals are the same, the the uh, departmental fighting creates uh, a lot of friction, and there's uh, they don't work as well together, which then you know makes the whole system kind of fall apart in a lot of ways and and La comment that he hates cops i think is really telling there yeah definitely where yeah, where it's like ooh they they don't get along and that's not going to help with you know making sure that they secure a crime scene that they show respect to witnesses that you're yeah. going to be using Well, when and they do the stuff.
0: surge they do a policing surge in the neighborhood to quell some gang violence the the top brass do interviews about it and press conferences right. which Corey is at one of those he's coerced into giving into admitting that it worked when it didn't and he's like i did basically he did a bunch of groundwork that ended up paying off but doesn't get to take credit <laughs> so it's that's a frustrating been delivered with absolute triumph and despair in the narrative, but instead it's it's like a little side story, but that is kind of depressing. Anyway, there's a, on yeah. 268, on mine, that he they do their surge, obviously what that happened, what happens is that they bring in outsiders who don't want to work in that area, don't want to work in the South, and so they end up doing things that are irrelevant, that won't actually help prevent anything, that won't help with the crime data, all that stuff, and they end up going to a parking lot and arresting some middle-aged addicts who are clearly yeah. unwell but don't need to be arrested it's like the cops in the south know these people and they just leave them be sort of a, a vibe and so yeah, yeah. he on the Barbara on 268 the addicts had no part in the youthful violence they weren't even in the territory of either suspect gang so just amateurish mistakes you got to be kidding me La Barbara muttered as he read the fucking parking lot so he you know he knows the region he knows it's irrelevant but then again you know you're just pushing you're going for numbers you're going for the big publicity move it's not thorough right. careful work and so yeah it was an incredible section that I don't know I I won't say that I resisted I resisted the urge to rush because I appreciated some of the observations, but even I felt the tug of the case. Even I thought, like, what are we mm-hmm. what are we doing here? Like, I, I understood that the South has problems, that there's institutional issues, bureaucratic incompetence, bad solutions not given enough time to take hold, et cetera, et cetera. It, this was a new perspective, but I guess it, I don't know. It felt like it was reiterating things I already understood, but, you know, it's a new lens, new examples, and uh, yeah, it got some interesting stuff too, so...
1: Yeah, I think that um, it ties in really well with her other uh, discussions about the the lack of, of resources. The, the new idea being that there is a complete, like, break of communication between departments there. Which we kind of saw a little bit when she talked a bit about how, like, some some of the other departments actually get more and better resources. Especially, like, um, she's talking about, like, the cars. Like, detectives yeah, have to, yeah. like, fight for... For every little yeah totally <laughs> little thing um, but yeah it's I thought that it was an interesting portrayal of of interdepartmental jealousies and um, lack of communication and disregard in a lot of ways just complete disregard um, but yeah it, it was then immediately jumping back into Bryant tinelli's case you're just kind of like whoa <laughs> like
0: yeah reading two yeah. different books
1: sometimes it's quite yeah. a pull
0: well let's get to that case because the final section we're going to discuss chapters 23 through the epilogue i think there's chapter 24 in there too right
1: yeah so there's three chapters gotcha
0: We arrive at the closing arguments, the case happens, they try people due to overwhelming nature of the evidence, which is quite overwhelming, and then also Starks makes a really horrible decision, legally speaking, to testify, which goes really horribly for him. Both of the defendants are convicted guilty and given life sentences, so... And they didn't comment much on how one of them, Davis, was... I mean, he was a minor when it happened. I don't know whether the league... California might also be different, have different, like, sentencing laws. But that was kind right. of shocking to see, life sentences. Which, by the way, this is an aside, but Skaggs didn't want... He doesn't even believe in life sentences. He, he really doesn't care about the sentencing at all, frankly. He just wants the conviction to happen, and then he doesn't... It seems like he, that doesn't you know matter to him as much as the deed or the, the doing of the thing anyway right. um so that happens the case is you know adjourned life on the streets and in the departments doesn't change too much murders happen grief overwhelms institutions scramble or stay the same so you know not not too much positivity in the back end or you know the court case goes the way they would hope given the evidence but in the end it's you know a lot of the same In the epilogue, we're given some snapshots. It almost feels like one of those post-credit movie sequences where they do like a five years later. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's not five years, Mm -hmm. but it's the same vibe. And so we follow up with the main characters and see what they're doing. A lot of the cops are just working in similar, different departments. Um, Interesting choice to interview both of the um, convicted. I guess we can just say criminals at that point because they're convicted in that section. We'll talk about that. And, you know, few issues are truly resolved. I'll end on this note for this section. Even the prisoners are now convinced that neither committed the crime so they they yeah. both maintain their innocence now which is kind of intriguing i will say that that was the thing that grabbed me from this whole section the court case is dramatic we could discuss all kinds of moments the she does love describing the flappy wild nature of the of the prosecutor and his you know his <laughs> scarecrow like appearance and, and flappiness yeah. <laughs> i don't know else to say it and you know there's there's interesting stuff in there she's she is strong with characterization and has moments of kind of hue um humor almost or at least lightness among All the intensity, but I really think the only thing I'd want to bring up in depth is the interviews with Starks and with Davis because okay, during the case, she did not go out of her way to speak to these people, probably wasn't allowed to, maybe, probably couldn't get access. Mm Yeah. So to dump it off in the epilogue is an odd thing because she gives them their moment to now argue their innocence, which is kind of astounding given the way the evidence built up, the way the case went, the way they were convicted. And it seemed like a surefire home run thing that like we finally got some resolution and justice to then hand that over to them at the end is really intriguing. I don't it was a bold structural choice. I thought um, mm-hmm. not, not reckless, I would say, but it. It almost feels kind of um, not voyeuristic because that's kind of sexual, but like leering that it's almost like, well, geez, look at, I mean, look what's going on with these guys. I I don't know. Did it feel empathetic to you or kind of sympathetic? It, It just, I guess it's nice to know that they're not in danger. That was kind of, especially Davis seems, I know he's maybe struggling with some issues, but they're both, they both seemed safe and kind of content. One of them even gives a quote and says something like, you know, it's peaceful in here. I can one of them even does the eye for an eye quote without saying that phrasing where they say, you know, Mm they lost a son. I lose my life in here. It's, it is what it is. Like that's, that's the trade we've made. I don't know. How did that ending strike you? Exploitative. Okay. Interesting. Any thoughts?
1: Um, I thought it was interesting. I was not surprised that they both were again, going back to the idea that they were, that they were falsely convicted. Um, just because, um, from what I've seen um, with like true crime stuff, like documentaries and stuff like that, with um, people who are convicted of violent crimes, like they'll they'll give a confession. um yeah. They'll be found guilty, and then they will in jail recant <laughs> and, totally and, and go back to that. So I wasn't surprised by that. Um, what I what I was. No, I also was not surprised when she added the information about them. I think both of them actually made comments about how it's safer in there than it is on the streets, right? And right. how I think it was um, Davis who was able to get out of, or or was it or was it uh, Stark? One of the two actually um, broke off from the gang
0: yeah. uh, affiliation yeah. and
1: are now back in like general population in in um in the jail. So it was like kind of positive in a way, which I also was not surprised by.
0: Well, um, if the book needed any end cap to make a more kind of grim, depressing summary of the complexity, it's ending the book with Starks quoting saying, I'd rather be in solitary confinement than like living my life is kind of an insane but i it was i again i i felt so conflicted because she gives them very little to no page time to argue their right. case so to speak during the book to end it with such a depressing quote it, it was really bleak to read that at the end and just think like okay well that's that's how they ended up resolving this in their in their minds this is how they not justify things but this is how they're going to reconcile things is just well i'd rather be in solitary confinement staring at this wall than anywhere else i mean yikes and then you know davis too is seems content with the eye for an eye i don't know philosophy but yeah yeah it, it was a strange tenor or tone to hand it over to them at the end in a sense
1: especially since like especially with stark he's we don't have any information about him and his what his life is like we know that his mom that he, his eyes soften as he gazes at his mom during court. But that's like the yeah. only thing that we really get from him. And, and that's the only personal information we really have about him. So at the end for him to make that comment about feeling, feeling really okay with being in solitary confinement yeah. and safer there too. And, and happier there. It's like, man, what was your life like
0: before? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, I'll say just for my part, just to, to, about the epilogue, because I know I've come down kind of hard on it. It was mostly just the balance of it and maybe the the quotes she pulled from them and the things they said. But I don't... I think she just is narrating this book and viewing it as if that was the right... The justice was done. That was the correct conviction. That's likely what happened. And I can't say I disagree. The evidence was just so staggering and overwhelming right. against them. It was, like, really stunning how caught up in this. The, the defendants or the defendant... What are they called? Defendants, right? The ju- the lawyers who defend?
1: Defending <laughs> there attorneys. Go,
0: attorneys, yeah. I was just like, there's got to be a word for this because <laughs> uh, the prosecutor. But no, defendants, <laughs> they admit it the same. They basically just say, like, yeah. this is an absolute cascade of evidence upon these men. Like, there's not. So it's not like I'm standing here high and mighty from some point of view of, like, no, no, we can't. You're not seeing the truth. This isn't 12 men in a jury or whatever the hell that movie's called. <laughs> What's that famous jury film? Like, angry men in a jury or ang- 12,
1: angry, 12 angry 12 angry men, angry men there it like that. is no yeah. Per-
0: yeah you got it perfect thank you yeah i'm not doing <laughs> that i so i i don't hold that against them so i think she's just kind of narrating it from that perspective almost as if the epilogue is kind of like oh, we know they did it but this is what they feels like almost like she's shrugging and saying like but this is i guess how they're processing or, or admitting or dealing. So, just I don't know, a strange ending I thought to include them. It really could have just been scags in the epilogue and a couple quick words about LA crime and just call it a book. <laughs> I just yeah. their inclusion at the end and giving them such intimate emotional moments was uh, was really a choice. I don't know. Can't say I agree with it, but hopefully that summarizes my perspective on it.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It, it was an interesting choice for sure.
0: Yeah. Any thoughts on how this book wraps up or the case? <clears throat>
1: um well, one of the things that I noticed too is like going back to to one of her arguments, she refers to um, the the situation, the way that things work, as the monster. Oh, right. So the monster being um, uh, the violence uh, in in these neighborhoods, the distrust of the police, and then the police not really helping the situation, and and the the not understanding of why there's resentment against the police. and Anyway, that whole thing, right? <laughs> that entire thing that just feeds on each other. Um, that would be the monster. So what I found interesting is um, she, she ties it back to her thesis, of course, and she she relates the Tonelli case to her thesis and says that Tonelli's case um, and the way that Skaggs investigates um, the case and is is able to put away um bryant's murderers that is evidence that the monster doesn't have to exist that it uh that that we could get rid of the monster we could get rid of this this violent cycle um with good cops with better resources with um da. da, da yeah. And the tenelli case is evidence for that yeah so she says on page 306 Um, If every murder and every serious assault against a black man on the streets were investigated with Skaggs' ceaseless vigor and determination, investigated as if one's own child were the victim, or as if we as a society could not bear to lose these people conditions would have been different if this system had for years produced a very high clearance rates that skaggs was so sure were possible if it did not function in the aggregate as a 40 percenter the violence could not have been so routine the victims would not have been so anonymous and bryant tinelli might not have died in the nearly invisible commonplace way in which he did the tinelli case stood for all of them um so that's like her her way of tying specifically, explaining why she focused on Skaggs and why she focused on right, uh, right. Brian Tonelli's murder case um, for for her thesis.
0: I will just say, we take these books as they are and do very little current events. With this book, it's awfully hard not to. <laughs> this was written, you know, in what, 2012 yeah. or something? Uh, it's just awfully difficult in 2022 to say the solution is to have more police with more money and more power. It, it it does feel like we've transitioned to a slightly different worldview as a culture. At least those conversations are tougher. And it I don't know, I couldn't help but reading those moments and thinking, well, what what shall we do with the police Created violence, perhaps, or escalations due to, for uh, example, having militarized uh, equipment. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's just things in here that she is clearly pro-police, but pro-effective, skags-like, determined, moralistic policing, and... I some of her arguments in that sense are a little bit harder to take on their face, but the book for its to its credit and her writing's credit is is even and it's I think her conclusions she arrives at can be a little too fast just like she assumes a little bit maybe too much for for some people like me who come from a more critical lens, but yeah, on the whole of the writing there's not much to quibble with so to speak. She she's pretty even, she writes and she she has a literary flair when she wants to which makes just the reading of it enjoyable, but it's I guess I just wanted to point out that perspective. Like, it is kind of hard to read that at the ending now and think, yeah, difficult in 2022 to say, like, let's supercharge the police force.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this was written in in 2015. So things have definitely are different now. Um, But just like with any philosophical work, anything where there's a clear thesis and and clear argumentation, there's going to be things that. Yeah people are going to agree with and disagree with. It's it's the nature of, of that type of writing. Yeah, so. and
0: she, we talked about this in part one, this is a, a recollection from way back, but she, she does glance at things like, oh, the cops used lying or intimidation as a tactic, or oh, they they do stop and frisk type policies where the point is to put fear into the populace or like shake down a lot of people who clearly aren't. She she the, She glances at those things, but it's not the project of the book to be too critical about that stuff overall. It's more about... These murders deserve to be solved, and they do, and we need to doggedly solve them, and and we should. And so it's kind of just like there are moments that you could think this would be a book more critical of the police. It's more critical of just any bureaucracy that has built-in apathy, low funding, and not honestly not a public. She kind of puts it on the public and the media in some senses, too. It's just kind of like the public will happily turn away from this and look away, which means – and the media does too. So she, yeah, anyway, she, she goes broad with her critiques. So any final yeah. thoughts on the ending?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I think I'm good.
0: Yeah, we covered it. Well, let's get to some ending segments. We will wrap up this book club podcast with a couple of planned segments. We'll start with some outside criticism. We call this critical assistance where we each pulled an article or some kind of critical essay or analysis of the work just to get some different perspectives. Since we don't have the be all end all opinions on this book, I will start from the LA Review of Books. I like how we both pulled the LA Publications. So. <laughs>
1: we had to, right? I mean, it said in LA. I guess so, yeah, <laughs> a
0: fitting enough a fitting enough coincidence. I just noticed that we did that. That's actually kind of funny. I like that. That's great. Mine is from the LA Review of Books. It's called <laughs> On the Other Side by Elizabeth Little. It's the title of the article. I'm not going to read this whole first quote. I just want to point out she does open by saying even in 2015, this book reviewer critic talks about how she's a white woman and how she was very skeptical to read a book by a white person about this issue I think she says at some point um, She needs to shut the fuck up. Yeah, that's what it is. Like, people like her need to shut the fuck up about their own experiences. Not the best attitude with which to approach a book by a white woman, I'll grant. though. So this is the quote I wanted to read. Um, Leovia has kept herself out of this book. Ghetto Side is not Leovia's story, nor does she attempt to make it so. Tellingly, even when she makes a rare reference to herself in the final pages, she still sticks stubbornly and almost forcefully to the third person. She is simply the writer. In our compulsively confessional world, I was almost shocked to encounter white writing on race in an absence of an I... I will say props, sure, but also it's all her lens because she chooses what to ignore and what to focus on. Right. Like it's that felt a little too simplistic to me. She still chose to include certain paragraphs mentioning perhaps maybe some policing that was questionable, and then not to go investigate that. And she also chooses yeah. to narrate Skaggs in a pretty specific manner and not to press against some moments when he maybe could be pressured or something. she is critical of him at times too. It's not a 100 percent effusive praising book I yeah, so I, I admire it it's it's as if she's praising her for writing nonfiction of any kind it's it's a weird compliment because it's like, well, yeah, she wrote a nonfiction book. <laughs> it's of course yeah. it's not about her. she's a reporter like yeah, she wrote it well like a reporter should, and any biases she has will show up. Kind of structurally, does that? I don't know if right. that makes sense. Right, in a
1: different method. Yeah. yeah, it's it's more subtle than that but, for sure. It's it's a journalistic writing, right? It's, totally. It's not. I mean, journalistic as in not like Fox News journalistic, but like. <laughs> Yikes!
0: <laughs> How big were your air quotes? <laughs> Just
1: did you break your fingers <laughs> doing a? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, actual journalistic integrity, where the biases show themselves in, in, in more of like. The 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 as you put it, the structure of of the the information yeah. rather than yeah the the insertion of. A personal opinion.
0: I guess this is just a PSA to say things can look like facts and be biased. Just heads up.
1: Yeah, everybody <laughs> adheres to statistics and stuff, but even statistics can yeah. be manipulated. So. She, she
0: talks about that in the book. So anyway, yeah, Leovy. Yeah. Anyway, a criticism. <laughs> I don't even know if Leovy would agree with. Anyway, um yeah. so then she goes on the the author of this to talk about how. Um, I want to pull this quote about her style. Some some of the, her sentences I quite coveted, as when she described the DA in charge of the Tenelli case as having, quote, a physique like a balsa wood frame of a kite. It curved and snapped with the constant motion of his limbs. In the context of the subject matter, however, her literary flair can come across like a magnesium flash. It doesn't just catch her eye, occasionally it's bright enough to blind. In my appreciation for Leovy's prose, I sometimes risk missing her point. It's a very nice compliment and frankly a well-written one. It's it's interesting in its own imagery. I don't think I felt that intensely about it, but I did really appreciate it. It's Leovi does well when she wants to again set a scene, get the get the, the mood right, the temperature of the of Los Angeles, the look of the shadows, the nighttime, you know, the sunset. It did feel kind of atmospheric at times, not overwhelmingly. So I don't yeah. think I reacted as strongly as this author, but I did respect and appreciate the prose.
1: I did too. I, I, the the narrative prose here, I just was like, oh, this is really nice. There's mm-hmm. some really great descriptions, and I I think that you were right to use the word atmospheric, especially um, when she sets up the day that Bryant Tonelli is murdered. That day was set up so beautifully. Yeah. Especially yeah. in contrast to the horror later on, I thought that she did a great job with that.
0: Yeah. A couple more quotes from her piece. Ghetto Side reads so briskly as a story that at times I worried the suspense might overwhelm the substance. The account of the Tanelli investigation is paced like a pot boiler, its information parceled out with the same sense of driving narrative rhythm. Then there's the climactic interrogation, which pits the persistent gags against the recalcitrant prime suspect, which could have been lifted from an episode of Homicide, uh, Life on the Street. That's an old TV drama. It's nearly enough to make you forget that real lives are at stake. Again, agree mm-hmm. with a lot of it. the conclusions, maybe a little bit much for me because I didn't feel that way, but I I did feel the pull, I'll admit this, I, I like this insight by this author. I did feel the pull of the narrative and you do feel guilty in those moments because when she wants to detour to give a statistic or to give context or history or whatever, you know, go veer off into her philosophy, I will admit to thinking like, yeah, but let's but what's going to happen? It's you can't resist that urge. I think it's It's like primal Mm -hmm. or something. It's, I don't know, maybe not primal, but it's, I don't know. I felt disturbed by it a couple of times where I felt bad. Mm.
1: Yeah, I I, kind of knew how the narrative would end up just because, uh, as I predicted, actually in the previous episode, I was like, I think Skaggs is definitely going to be the one to solve this case because of the the way that she kind of framed that. So I knew narratively what was going to happen. Um, so I, I I felt the pull of the narration um, from a literary aspect. Yeah. But the detours into the philosophy and stuff, it didn't bother me, except that it was just so separate from the narrative. Um, and it mm-hmm. and, and often was jarring in that way. But um, I think that she did both well. It's just that she didn't integrate them well.
0: For oh, me. I could see. Yeah, that's a fair criticism. I could see that being um, track that thought down or. And analyze that yeah. in a broader sense that could work final quote a quick one too the great achievement of ghetto side is to put readers in a similar position leovi presents the men and women of ghetto side as not as objects of distant study but as subjects whose lives we are invited to inhabit she um, leovi gives volume to the voices of the victims their families the killers the cops allowing their pain and terror plainly presented to rework our own understanding yeah a decent summary of of things here i think throwing the killers in that same list again felt i the victims yeah. families the cops i don't it's still to me is a book about cops I, that's just a fact i don't it's she does well interviewing victims she does well following up she's thorough i remember those opening chapters detailing the the murder what's the the uh, murder victim what was his first name wally no, that's the isn't that Wally
1: Tanelli the the R H R C H son's Wally Tanelli killed Brian. Brian.
0: There. Okay. I kept thinking Wally. The opening chapters detailing his young life were just devastating because you knew it was going to happen. And she was thorough. She was fair. She was human. She would you know introduce literary flair. I to throw them all on a list like that to me is again I question it a little. It's I don't think it's a book about victims and families as much as it is about cops and how institutional things with cops are run and how detectives work. But maybe that's just me being too harsh or critical because I do see the other moments of uh, the breadth of humanity, I guess I'd say.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree that there's some follow-up with the families with uh, and, and the victims themselves, right? We get some background information about some of them, but I think that you're right in saying that really it is a story about the justice system itself. I mean, that's her her entire thesis. That's the entire thing that she's trying to argue for um, and against. And so the to focus on the the daily policing practices and the failures of some of those practices, especially what she put in air quotes and in, in quotes is the proactive policing. Right, right. She, right. she definitely is not all about that. Um, so those things that she really focuses on that that's meant to be the focus because that's her thesis. And the the victims and the families are there she does include them which is nice um but then again that is to also kind of highlight the humanity and the need for um as she sees it the need for the police and and why we have to
0: um give them the resources that they so desperately require definitely yeah yeah that's well said and how about for your source amanda what do you got so i guess just to sum it up quick though I, I agree with a lot of the criticisms and, and ideas and compliments in that in that piece. I some of them were just worded in a way that I wouldn't have pushed to, but yeah, I think it was right. well well said. Some good insights. Anyway, sorry. What about for yours?
1: Uh so I pulled mine from the Los Angeles Times, um, <laughs> and I did see that like the New York Times had written an article and everything, but I was like, no, we got to pull from Los Angeles because it's all set in Los Angeles. Um, so this is called review. Ghetto Side focuses on one LA murder to make case for more policing, and this is by Sudhir suit Venkatesh. Sorry, I butchered your name.
0: Um, th- yeah, Ven-K- Venkatesh. I think no, that looks like, that looks right to me.
1: Yeah, Venkatesh. I think that V's are pronounced as W's though, right?
0: Well, now you've trapped me when in Katesh. my own in my own <laughs> idiocy. I don't <laughs> in my own ignorance. I don't know.
1: Uh, Maybe that's regional. I don't know. Um, So Venkatesh or Wenkatesh. Um, So here's what he wrote. Uh, The passionate defense of commanders and union shop stewards does not always help the public understand a basic issue. How do police operate and what is necessary to help them do their work more legitimately and effectively? Jill Leovy's new book takes us a long way toward answering this question. So... The I I think that the book he's trying to point out that the book does focus on like police practices, which it does um, it, on some of those practices. But the what is necessary to help them do their work more legitimately and effectively. She only mentions a couple of
0: things, really, that overtime? I think. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, but that also that's like overtime. I found some of those things to be. I don't know it's like such a shallow answer it's also of course fair you have to keep the department running but it's like Jesus that's the best we have is we also have to sacrifice let's let's assume Skaggs is as upstanding and moral as he seems to be okay I accept that he does legitimately great work on behalf of people that deserve it etc like yep I accept all these premises like the answer is really that we have to sacrifice this man's life then <laughs> and be like you have to work 60 hour weeks just because you're like that's the answer <laughs> the book has yeah. more sophisticated points of view of course but I I also kind of bucked at those sections and was like geez is the answer really just overworking people more and like i guess you know compensate them for it obviously but anyway yeah
1: yeah she said yeah she does talk about overtime and about um the possibility of giving them actual like make them salaried employees rather than hourly employees um, as a possibility. But I think her real thing was she she kept harping on the idea of like mentorship and how La Barbero is like driving himself crazy because all he had were like newbies and nobody to train them up properly because the Academy only focuses on, you know, the the bookish parts, the policy parts rather than the realities of of walking the streets and everything. Yeah. Um so so she does kind of touch on some of those but as far as like offering up real solutions I, I don't think that that was her purpose um, she just thinks like more funding in general I think is and better practices changing up the, the policy practices are the two solutions that she comes up with but she doesn't actually like you know di- drill down a whole lot on, on those things so um, anyway he mm-hmm. goes on to say Leovi's thesis will not appease the critics who say that police are too heavy handed and unfair, but ghetto side works as provocation because of Leovi's chosen vantage point. In a democracy, we must hand over the state the monopoly on the use of force. This means we have to figure out how to let police do their jobs well. So that is definitely her thesis, and I thought that you would have some thoughts on that sentence.
0: <laughs> I do, but not for this podcast. <laughs> I uh, It is not a bad summary of her thesis. It's a good one. And even I would say it's not a bad summary of an entire kind of political, philosophical point of view, frankly. One that I don't even mm-hmm. fi- would – I'm not even sure if I'd entirely find myself disagreeing with it either to – an extent. I yeah, it's weird. I I don't want to, not only because I'm unprepared at eleven thirty PM on a Tuesday night or something to <laughs> adequately address this question, but also the book, more importantly, doesn't have too much of an interest. It is the foundation of the book. If you don't agree with that, the book is going to be a failure for you. <laughs> You're just gonna like yeah, I think it, it operates from the place of we need police, so let's figure this out kind of an energy. I think again the tone it strikes is more of like the police do admirable good work under hard conditions and they deserve, you know, respect, which I think that tonal stuff and focus could be maybe more easily quibbled with in this book, but no, it's, it's a good summary. And she brings that up a lot. Leovi at least four to five times. Does she say almost yeah. that exact sentence?
1: Yeah. The, the monopoly on the use of force is definitely a phrase that I will remember forever from this book. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh the writer goes on to talk about um how she focuses on policing practices and also um how she kind of how Leovi Leovi's treatment of Skaggs is at times romantic which we've talked about um And he finishes up with, Leovi has created a book that is part reportage and part sociology. Her diagnosis is clear and compelling. Gettyside's tale is rooted in a specific place, but it's clear that Leovi sees this LA neighborhood as a microcosm of American dysfunction and Skaggs as a representative of a path not taken. Um, Mm -hmm. So I liked that he's kind of making it seem, he's pointing out that this is, even though this is about one particular neighborhood in one city in one state in one country in one part of the world it's right, something right. that um leovi is trying to show is true for um uh, the world at large and and that's why she makes those um philosophical asides about um violence and about the the lack of um a true justice system will create then a shadow system of vengeance and right and retribution and stuff like that so i thought that was a point well 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 done yeah
0: i agree i agree and she does some historical work too that we covered at least briefly we made allusions to it yeah any final quotes from this one you want to talk through
1: nope that was it
0: yeah, Gag's a bit at times romantic. I, I looked at that quote again and thought, <laughs> yes, I do. I agree with that assessment. It's and it is both parts, right? You have to it's he's so thoroughly described that you have to in the end kind of tip your hat and respect the hard work that he really put in, sacrifices made to Yeah, to to do right by it all. So Yeah. Any final thoughts on Ghetto Side by Jill, it's Jill Leovy. I don't have the book in front of me now. See, this is what happens. Take a name away from me for half a second (laughs) and it all falls apart. I knew it was Leovy. I just, the first name (laughs) I got paused by. (laughs) Anyway, any final thoughts on Ghetto Side by Jill Leovy? (laughs) That's it for me. Yeah, me too. Excellent. (laughs) We covered it pretty thoroughly. Thanks for listening all the way through, dearest listeners. We have been the Lightly Literary Podcast. Again, find us on Facebook and Instagram under that name, all one word, the Lightly Literary Podcast. Anywhere on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you can review or rate the podcast, we do so appreciate it. And if you're a longtime listener, thanks for sticking with us as we try out a new chronological format. We're still feeling it out. We've gone long both times, Amanda, but overall, I think we're, we're going to make this fit it, it's the people you know it's what they want got to give them what they want <laughs> <laughs> so anyway thanks for listening through all the way we have other books coming up in order if you're curious about them amanda will tell you about them now take it away amanda
1: uh next up we have we are okay by nina Lacour, which is a young adult novel then we have the ink all by Hodorowski and mobius which is a graphic novel that travis chose Mm -hmm. and finally we have uncommon type some stories by the great actor tom Tom hanks
0: Hanks himself he's also a Mm middle-aged man buying typewriters and having a crisis i guess writing stories (laughs) i am intrigued by those maybe concerned but i very intrigued i'll admit very intrigued there's there's a lot of them too it's like longer than i thought so he really put in some work here anyway
1: yeah I think I'm not even sure that this is the only thing that he's ever had published. Honestly, so maybe not. I'll have to look
0: that up. Why not? He's super famous. He can he can move some copies. There's no question. He right. moved two. Yeah. We oh, I own a copy now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, classic. All right, excellent. Thanks, Amanda, for closing us out. And folks, until next time, we'll see you between the pages.